brethren, as most of you know, and Dr. Franz indicated, tomorrow is Father's Day. And we all know and should know that our ultimate father is God. And we want to always think about that. I can't help remembering when Father's Day come about how my father died back in 1963. He died quite a long time before my mother did. And she had to live for nearly 30 years as a widow. But he died at just age 67. And I was very hurt by that. But I was actually already on the way when he died to a Middle East trip sponsored by the American Book Company and Scandinavian Airlines, one of the evangelists that I'd known and was very close to in those days, climbed all the high mountains around California with, named David John Hill. Some of you older brethren remember him. He was a very colorful teacher and writer. But John wanted to go up, and I think we were doing it illegally. I don't think there was a law against it, but I don't think you're supposed to. But we, we, at night, we climbed one of the big pyramids, and somehow it just hit me. I was up at the top of one of the biggest pyramids. I don't know if it was the greatest pyramid, but it was a big pyramid, and there was a clear moon and very little, of course, clouds in that part of the world, very dry. You could see all over the desert, and here I was, and I thought, well, my dad is back in Ozark Memorial Cemetery, and here I am, his son, sitting up on top of a pyramid halfway around the world. And I thought of a number of things like that, all the things I wish I'd done for him while he was still alive. He was very athletic and very loving of the out-of-doors. And every now and then people tell me about my sister, Mrs. Ames, and how she's always doing something out-of-doors or climbing something difficult or doing something. Well, Daddy taught us that. And he loved the out-of-doors. I always wanted to take him to the Idaho wilderness area, which he'd never been able to do, or things like that. But I never got to do that. But he certainly was a father that I'll remember. And he didn't get to go to all of my games and things like that because he had to work. In those days, fathers often had to work nine or ten hours a day, and they just couldn't take off like fathers can today. But he did what he could as a father, And I can always remember him rescuing me one time when I was being swept down the river, and I think I told you about that. And another time, he ran a great big rusty nail up in his foot, climbing around the big river there below these high bluffs in southern Missouri, and he was bleeding. His foot was filling up. His tennis shoe was filling up with blood. He looked at it, but he said, I've got to get Roddy back up that hill. So he pulled me back up the hill, and he was running with pain, but he went and went and went anyway. And I was just a little five- or six-year-old boy, and he pulled me back up that steep hill again, and then he got his foot taken care of. He took care of me first. And I always remember those accounts about how strong he was physically and how masculine he was, and a very good father. But at the top of the pyramid in Egypt, I had to realize and thought about it. I really did on that occasion. I was already a minister, very much into the Bible, and I meditated on the fact my only father now is God. My physical father is gone. So we've all got to have that understanding and act on that understanding that God is our father. And as I've told you so many times, including the last sermon I gave, we're now entering one of the most traumatic and terrifying times in human history where Jesus himself said that there has never been a time so bad, never will be again as the coming great tribulation. So during these coming years, brethren, we're going to be tried and tested in many ways. 
And we need to ask ourselves, will we become physically sick or will we become mentally, emotionally, or spiritually sick? I understand I didn't get to hear it yet on the tape, but Dr. Scott Winnell gave a fine sermon last Sabbath, the Sabbath just before Pentecost, on physical illness and how to take care of yourself. And I've been wanting us to preach on these lines, and I want to preach the other part of it today, because mental illness and psychological illness is actually responsible for more of our problems, many doctors say, than physical illness. It's very, very sickness. As you've heard me say, it's not what you're eating, it's what is eating you. And that often is what's responsible for many people, and we really need to understand that, and as a church, act on that. So we need to be ready for the times that are going to come because they are going to be very trying times. Turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, brethren. And I want to begin here in verse 5. Hebrews 13. And a very wonderful, favorite verse of many of us. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Don't always be wanting more and more. Another TV set, another car. Why not kind of have more? But be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God has promised that. I will never leave you or forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Well, obviously God can't or man can't do anything except by God's permission. And God did permit man to sometimes persecute the Christians. We know that. But it's only within God's will and only so far. And they can take our physical life, but they can never, ever take our spiritual life from us as long as we are trying to do our best and walking with God and never, never give up. So we want to really understand that. I have a couple quotes here on this topic that I've asked Monica to type out for me. I'm just going to read you parts of them rather than having to read too much. I realize I shouldn't be reading a lot. But here's from a book, How to Live 365 Days a Year. It's a very good book. And both these books I'm referring to are written by medical doctors. Medical doctors. On page 19, he says, One of the outstanding things, for instance, about emotionally induced illness. They call it EII. Emotionally induced illness is that over 50% of those seeking medical today have it. Put it differently, if you become ill tomorrow or if you're ill today, the chances are a little better than 50-50 that you are ill with emotionally induced illness. Still another way of putting it, a big textbook of medicine such as medical students use contains the account of roughly 1,000 different diseases that the human clay of ours is subject to. One of these diseases, a mostly induced illness, is as common as all the other 999 put together. Virtually everyone has it at one time or the other, a mostly induced illness. Now, another book, None of These Diseases, by Dr. S.I. McMillan, M.D., He says, quote, peace does not come in capsules. You can't get peace by taking a pill, in other words. This is regrettable because medical science recognizes that emotions such as fear, sorrow, envy, resentment, and hatred are responsible for the majority of our sicknesses. 
Estimates vary from 60% to nearly 100%. Emotional stress can cause high blood pressure, toxic goiter, migraine headaches, arthritis, apoplexy, heart trouble, gastrointestinal ulcers, and other serious diseases. And by the way, I've read a number of articles showing it certainly contributes to cancer, to cancer as well, too numerous to mention. As physicians, we can prescribe medicine for the symptoms of these diseases, but we cannot do much for the underlying cause, emotionally turmoil. It is lamentable that peace does not come in capsules. You can't take a pill and get over emotionally induced illness. You've got to get at the root cause and understand it and avoid it. And we maybe should have cerebral sermons along the line of our physical sicknesses and our mental and emotional diseases because it does affect the church. It's very important for people in our age to understand. It really is. So we need to think about what's happening and how so many people are sick, not just from physical reasons. It's not what you're eating. It's what's eating you, as I've said. Many in the church have had very serious illnesses that I've known through the years, and I'm not going to mention their names, not just recently, but over the last 62 years I've been in the ministry, acting as a minister at least from my graduation 62 years ago out on a nationwide baptizing tour and already raising up churches and talking to people. And I know that many people have had sicknesses and illnesses because of their mental attitude. It became very obvious if you'd studied much psychology and thought about it. What did Jesus Christ teach about these things? Because he did teach about these things when you think about it. And I could read you hundreds of verses. I'll read you just a few in this sermon. Let's go back to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5. Turn to Matthew chapter 5, brethren. And I'm going to begin reading here in verse 43. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, of course, that was under the Old Testament. And God permitted those things. He did not give them His Holy Spirit so they could not always control their attitudes to the extent we can today with God's Holy Spirit. But I say unto you, you shall love your enemies. We're to love our enemies. Therefore, we can't have resentment and bitterness and envy and, com and comp competitive attitudes. Love your enemies. Bless them who curse you and do good to those who hate you. And pray for those whose spirit spitefully use you and persecute you. That's not easy to do, but that's what God tells us to do. And through years of working on it, you can all improve. I know I've improved some. I need to keep working on it. But we have improved through the years, many of us, as we understand these attitudes and how we've got to love every human being made in God's image no matter what they do that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun to shine on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. God loves all of us. He loves every human being made in his image. And we've got to try to do the same thing, and with God's help we can do it increasingly. In chapter 6, turn to Matthew 6 now. Let's begin in verse 30. I could begin, of course, much earlier and read the whole thing. I'd like to, but let's read beginning in verse 30. Matthew 6, verse 30. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O little faith? 
We've got to have faith that God will take care of us if he takes care of the grass. We don't have to worry about all these physical things. Therefore, do not worry. You can take proper care and get a good job, take care of your family, get a savings plan. You young people, get a savings plan now. Start saving. I'm very grateful my parents virtually made me do that. They started me a savings account at the First National Bank in Joplin before I was old. I can't even remember when it started, when I was maybe five or six years old, because I'd get money for Christmas presents and money for birthday presents, and then they'd suggest, well, can't we put this in a savings account? Well, I didn't know anything. I'd say, well, that's fine. And later I realized that was a very good idea that they'd been doing that. So that by the time I went to Ambassador College, I had a few thousand dollars, not many, but maybe one or two thousand. I guess it was worth a lot more than, than, than today because I'd been doing that for years and then when I worked on the farm in northern Kansas, I sent my father my paycheck. When I worked in the woods in Oregon, at the uh, woods and also at this Martin Box factory, I can remember taking this $45 check and, and a, 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 a certain type of check you sent through the mail and sent it to my father every week. And he would deposit that in my savings account back in Joplin, Missouri. Therefore, I kept a little bit out. But as I remember, I would send him $45 and he was able to deposit that, and therefore I could have a certain peace of mind that I had some money coming along. It's not wrong to save. It's not wrong to take care of yourself, but don't sit around worrying. Do your part and then leave the rest up to God. All these things the Gentiles seek after. Your Heavenly Father knows you have needed these things, but seek first above everything else and really know God will take care of you if you do it. Seek first the kingdom of God. Prepare for the coming government of God and prepare yourself to be a king or a priest, a leader, a ruler, a teacher, one to help others, one to help others in that coming kingdom. Prepare for that and all these other things will be added to you. Christ promises that he will take care of you. You don't have to worry. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about its own things sufficient to the day as the evil thereof. He says back in the prayer, the Lord's Prayer, we call it, back in chapter 6, verse 9, in this manner, pray. You start out worshiping and honoring God. You focus on God as you pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And know that God will do that if you pray and ask him to do it and do your part. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And that's another very important thing to have as far as your emotional and your spiritual health. Learn to forgive and forget. Don't carry it around. Don't carry around resentment and bitterness and competitiveness and I'm going to get them later attitude. That will physically kill you. It really will, brethren. I'm not exaggerating that. It will not always, but it can. It certainly will spiritually kill you if you don't repent of it. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our other debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. There is a devil out there. He's trying to stir up these wrong attitudes, and that will destroy us. It won't always destroy the other guy we're mad at, but it will destroy us. Our stomach will not up. Our blood pressure will go up. We may have a heart attack. We may have any number of things. Deliver us from the evil one. 
For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Verse 14, Jesus said, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive yours. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. God will not forgive you if you don't learn to forgive others. You've got to really learn to forgive them from the heart, as Jesus said. I think it was in Matthew 17. Mean it. Mean it. Say, Father in heaven, help me to mean it, not to carry it around inside and brood over it and bet a spirit of bitterness. I've told you so many times how Mr. Armstrong said a spirit of bitterness is like heroin. You're just hooked. You're just bitter, bitter. You can't be reasoned with after a while. Don't let those attitudes take care of you, kill you. Don't let those attitudes destroy you. Brethren, you must not do that. This is a terribly important part of your physical, your spiritual, your mental, and your psychological health, not to carry these things around. Turn to Philippians chapter 4. You know, the Apostle Paul was one of the most positive individuals you could think of when you really know what he went through. He spent most of the last five years of his life in prison, either as a civil prisoner, political prisoner, or a literal jailbird, as they felt he was forever in that last part of his imprisonment where they finally chopped his head off. Yet here was Paul in, in, in prison, at least in a hired house, with a Roman soldier guarding him, and he had shackles around his ankles. He said, Brethren, remember my chains, as he wrote Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, and, uh, and Ephesians. Remember my chains. He was literally dragging around a ball and chain, and yet he was very positive in spite of that, a positive attitude. Notice back in chapter 4, Philippians 4 and verse 4, here's this man in chains. What's he saying? Oh, woe is me. Here I've served God all these years, and he's letting me be in this hired house. I don't even have my own house, and I'm with this Roman soldier guarding me, and my ankles are getting raw with the shackles around my ankles, dragging around this big iron ball. And when I go to the toilet, I've got to drag the thing in there and hope it doesn't hinder me and all the things I'm going through. Woe is me, woe is me. Rejoice in the Lord, verse 4. He says, always, again I will say, rejoice. The man in chains, rejoice. Let your gentleness, and the Greek is perhaps better translated graciousness, it's in the margin, and some commentaries in and indicate that. A very gracious person is one not just gentle, but is kind and outflowing in their concern for others. Let your graciousness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. You can be concerned in a right, positive way, but don't let it bug you and give you ulcers. Don't make it make you mad because you're so mad at this other person you don't know what to do about it. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And let me give you this little clue to prayer, brethren. The Apostle Paul does. And Mr. Armstrong mentioned to me in personal just talks I had that he spent sometimes one-third. He says, I don't always do that, Rod. But sometimes he spent up to one-third of his entire prayer just praising and thanking God. So he said, go to God with supplication and thanksgiving. Sometimes you can start out your prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Please send Jesus soon. May your kingdom come. 
And thank you for guiding me. Thank you for guiding the work. Thank you for helping us at least start to prepare the way. Thank you for the work. Thank you for the church. Thank you for our lives. Thank you for my wife, my husband, my children, my house, my food, everything I have, and go down the line and begin to thank God and praise God with thanksgiving. That helps you be in a positive attitude. Count your blessings one by one, that old Protestant song says. And that's what we need to do to help be in a, product, in a right attitude. Start to say a Protestant attitude and no a right attitude. Let your request be made known to God. And notice verse 7, what's the result of that attitude? And the peace of God. Mental peace, a positive attitude. You could sleep well at night. You're not all torn up with emotions and resentment and bitterness and competition and hate. The peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, notice this, my brethren, right here. Whatever things are true, don't always just, well, did you know that so-and-so said that? Did you notice that Mr. Somebody, this minister, was too strong in his sermon last night and he corrected the whole church or he jumped on so-and-so? Did you notice that? No, he doesn't say dwell on those things. Dwell on whatever is true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. You're not just nicey-nice. You can be aware of things around you. I am as part of my job. I have to decide, does someone need to be changed over here to a different job? Or should we raise their wages or cut their wages or correct, correct them for their own good or whatever? That's part of my job. I've got to evaluate in a right way. And Dr. Manale has to do that in working with the ministry. Mr. Ames has to do that in working with the media people. All of us have to do that as part of our jobs. But the main emphasis should be positive things, not just negative things. If we have to see something negative, try to make it be positive by going to the person, not to hurt him or to get even, but to help him, to help him as a human being not make that same mistake, not keep right on making that mistake, but to get to him so he'll understand it and be able to correct the mistake before it hurts himself or hurts others too much. Accentuate the positive. Brethren, back during the Second World War, and again, you young people don't know this unless I tell you someone that lived back then, but you're around the whole world around you so different today. It just hits me once in a while when you have the people announcing the news on the radio or television, it's as though they're neutral. People are spies from outer space and they don't even act like they're necessarily for America or against America. They're just analysts and sometimes they're against us more than they're for us. The whole attitude. Back then, we were together. And when we were attacked at Pearl Harbor, December the 7th, 1941, why Franklin Roosevelt got up and about one-third of the Congress hated his guts because he brought through all these liberal programs back then, which is not near as liberal as what we have today, but a lot of them did. They, and I, some of you older people remember that. I'm not making that up. There was a big divide in the country. Not as big as we have today, though. I will say that. But, boy, the Americans got together, and they said, over there, over there, we won't, it won't, we won't be back till it's over, over there. We're going to go over there, and we're going to win. Roosevelt said at the conclusion of his speech before Congress, we shall gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. 
and the Congress exploded in applause. They were all behind him. They often don't even mention the name God anymore because we, you know, even our leaders say, which God? Are we any better than the Muslims? Are the Muslims any better than the Buddhists? Are the Buddhists any better than the whatever? There are all these people who are not afraid to even mention who we are as a nation and the kind of religion we ought to have. It's really sick. We had songs over and over, over and over about thinking positive. Accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative. Don't mess with Mr. In-Between. Now, some of you wish I'd shut up and quit singing. I know <laughs> you're not positive about my singing. That's okay, just so you get the message. I never won any prizes for music, I can assure you that. But we had that song and so many songs. I am looking over a four-leaf clover, and it went on in a real positive way. And Kate Smith, this wonderful soprano who used to sing and be very positive, uh, she talked about uh, someday over the white clothes cliffs of Dover, it'll all be over, and little Jimmy will come back to his own bed. <laughs> Later I had a little boy named Jimmy, but not back then. Jimmy will sleep in his old bed tonight. It'll all be over, and the white cliffs of Dover can be seen once again. And London won't be under siege by bombings day and night from the Germans. A different way, a positive way. We're going to win. That was the attitude. We can't help but win. We're America. We're proud of it. We're thankful to God for what we've been given. That was the attitude. So think on the positive. God wants us to do that. That whole era was more of a positive era. I really meant it song after song and all kinds of things were that way. Think on things of good report. If there's anything of virtue, anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. Now, Paul was very close to God, much closer than I am, I'm sure, so he could say that emphatically. He was saying, in effect, brethren, I have set you a good example. Follow me. And certainly follow me as I follow Christ, as he said in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. These do, and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your cares for me has flourished again, though you surely did care. He said, I know you love me, and he was positive in that, but you lacked opportunity. He was off in Rome, and they didn't have a chance to help him for a while. Not that I speak in regard to need, for, Paul wrote, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Paul had to be way up, and he had to be way down. He could be in the middle of a church and heal people and raise people up and make them well right away and all that kind of thing and be adulated by some of the brethren for his sermon or his miracles or whatever. Other times, he was in a lonely Roman prison. Another time, he was out under the stars in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea and God let him get shipwrecked and he apparently was hanging on to a piece of board or something out there and spent a night and a day, maybe 36 hours out in the ocean and as he looked up to God there bouncing along all alone out there in the ocean, he probably thought, well, God, is this my time? I don't know if God gave him some vision. He wasn't probably sure all the time. He just had to know God would take care of him one way or the other. And he was hanging on to a board or something out there I've learned whatever state I am to be content. Are you? I've got to learn to be like that, and I hope I will be. I'm not happy of being alone since my wife's death, but I can get by. 
and be positive about it because I have a wonderful job and I have wonderful friends and I have these two young men helping me and my son Jonathan has moved back home and he's helping take care of me. So sometimes there's three of us at a time making noise in the house. It's not a lonely tomb there. So that's good. And I can be positive about it. And God will be positive about it. As I told you before, and I really mean it, one of the happiest summers I ever had in my life, I spent living mainly in tents or cleaned out chicken coops working in the woods. One place that we were there several weeks, we, this old chicken coop we cleaned out and it had the roof over it, but the roof was pretty leaky, but we had our bags and we could put our bag over it partly if it rained very much. And in the summer, it didn't rain that much that summer in Oregon, but I was very happy. I'd get up every morning and Mrs. Duncan, the only lady there, she was a farmer's wife and you'll read about her and her husband a little bit, I think, are mentioned and and uh, the, uh, she was the daughter of one of these people in Mr. Armstrong's autobiography. Anyway, she was a very husky farm lady. She fixed us, uh, she fixed us buckwheat cakes and, and eggs, all you could eat every morning. Wow, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. Eggs and buckwheat cakes every morning. I could eat all I wanted to and not get sick because we're out climbing up and down the mountain all day long and, you know, burned it up. So I wasn't thinking, what's wrong with me? I'm, I'm sleeping in a tent in an old cleaned-out chicken house. I thought, boy, I'm working in the woods, and I'm out in the beautiful area, and I'm getting big and strong, and look at this beauty around me, and I came on tired and happy at night, and I got to have buckwheat cakes the next morning. So you learn to be happy wherever you are. He said, I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. And Paul went through a lot more than I ever had, so don't let me that compare with him. I don't. But everywhere and in all things, I've learned to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. So some of us may have to be in a jail for a while. We may have to be without food at times. We might be out in a ship or a raft in the middle of a lake or ocean and not sure that God's going to deliver us. We say, God, you're up there and I'm down here. I'm your child. You are my God. I know you will take care of me and not worry about it and not get mad at God or mad at one another. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we want to really know that. And I notice some of these books that I've read through the years about positive thinking you know, one of them, a good book to read, if you haven't read it, is Norman Vincent Peale's old book, The Power of Positive Thinking. It's all out of date now, but it still has a lot of good principles. But, of course, remember, he was a Protestant, and he had this positive thinking attitude. He was a psychologist, sort of, and so he, he applies this to everybody. Everybody can just think, well, uh, you know, God is with me, and, and uh, all things, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, that frankly doesn't work for everybody because they don't even know who Christ was. They don't obey him. They don't keep God's commandments. But brethren, we do know God. And most of you in this room are at least trying to keep God's commandments. And you can believe that. I can do all things, you know, knowing it's within God's will, not some bad thing. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He will strengthen you. He will guide you. As we read back in Hebrews, God will never leave you, never, and never forsake you. And you can have peace of mind, and you can have a positive attitude knowing that you have a father. Your only real father that will last forever is Almighty God with our merciful Savior and High Priest, Jesus at God's right hand, 
who is a merciful and faithful high priest because he's gone right through the same trials we have. And he understands. And God the Father understands. So we've got to really think that through and be positive. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and not let ourselves get in a turmoil. Someone in the church is harassing you. Someone has told lies about you. Someone's picking on you. You have a psychological problem with someone. Get over it. (laughs) I'm sorry, but I've had to get over things like that, and all of you need to. If you are really persecuted someday, or I am, and any number of us could be, if they start to put us on a rack and stretch our bodies and pull our bones apart like they used to, professing Christians, or put us up on a stake and burn us alive, all those little attitudes you had toward Joanne or Jack or whatever, they'll just be gone. Real persecution will happen. What most of us think of as a problem is not really a problem at all. We just make it so in our own minds. We make it so in our own minds. So ask God, say, Father, and help me get over it. Help me repent of it. And go to your brother if he's hurt you in some way. Don't go to someone else. Go to him, like it says in Matthew 18. Talk it over. Pray about it first. Go talk to him about it. Be fair. Acknowledge you may have a part in it, but get over it and repent of your part in it. And you can have the peace of mind which passes all understanding. And you really need to do that. Turn back now to Psalm 37. And I believe I read some of this a few weeks ago, but that's all right. It's one of the best chapters in the Bible in one way, as you'll see. Psalm 37. David writes, Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the eternal and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Just literally feed on God as you study the Bible and meditate on it and meditate on his mind, the way he looks at things, the way he is. Delight yourself in the eternal and he shall give you the desires of your heart. He will give you the desires of your heart. And we know that if it's within God's will, if I say, well, God, I want a, a, a big battleship tomorrow, well, he could say, well, you know, Meredith, you don't need a battleship. But if it makes sense, it'll help me as a Christian. It will help me do God's work. He can give me a better car, a bigger this or a better that. I don't desire any of that, by the way. But if there is a need, he would give me that. I know that. He would give me that. He shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the eternal. Trust in him. And he shall bring it to pass. God is our Father, and he will take care of us in all these things. And these promises like this are all the way through your Bible. Turn to verse 23 now. Psalm 37, verse 23. The steps of the good man are ordered by the eternal, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the ever-living one upholds him with his hand. I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken. God has never totally forsaken people who are righteous and let them have to go out and beg. He is ever merciful and lends, and his descendants are blessed. So God makes those kind of statements, and they are in effect promises in his word. 
Depart from evil and do good and dwell forevermore, for the eternal loves justice and does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. We're so much better off in God's church. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom, and his tongue talks of justice. The law of God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. He says down in verse 34, Wait on the Lord, keep his way, and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you'll see it. Eventually we'll see these people that are strutting around are gone. I've seen that in the work. Some of the people are definitely wicked. I mean, I'm not talking about very many now, just some are weak, but some are just definitely wicked. They have, they're dead. They're gone. You shall see it. I have seen the wicked in great power and strutting around like a sneedy green, green bay tree, the King James has it. Yet he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, and he could not be found. A lot of you don't even know the people that I saw these things happen to. They're not around, and none of you even know about them. But a few years ago, they were strutting around. They are trying to get rid of Herman Hay and Raymond Minaire and I and the others who were still faithful to Mr. Armstrong. They wanted to destroy us. Mark the blameless man. Observe the upright. For the future of that man is peace. But the transgressor shall be destroyed together, and the future of the wicked shall be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. God has always intervened. He will always take care of us in the end. And the eternal shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them. Why? Because they trust in him. If we trust in God, if we think positive thoughts, if we don't allow ourselves to get bitter, if we don't allow ourselves to get envious and frustrated and actually sick, physically as a result in many many cases then God will be our deliverer he will take care of us always so we really want to understand that and I hope that we all can I want to turn now if you would to uh, James chapter 3 James chapter 3 brethren in the New Testament here and notice in No, I'm sorry. Got the wrong marker. James 3 and verse 13. James asks, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good works the con- good and good conduct that his works are done in the meekness, being humble, meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envying, so many have that, brethren, and have had that in the work, fighting and competing with one another. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing will be there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure. You don't have an axe to grind You don't flatter other people to get advantage of them. You don't lie to get praised or raised in your job. You don't play political games. Pure. The wisdom that is from above is first pure. You are who you are. You're genuine. 
than peaceable. You're not wanting to fight all the time. Fight, 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 argue, fuss. Oh, they're over at headquarters, they're making all these mistakes, and blah, 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 Mr. So-and-so and Mr. So-and-so did something, and I disagree. They're not always like that. They're not always looking for a fight. Peaceable. And God, God appreciates people that are peaceable. Willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Then he asked, why are wars among us? And, of course, they come from our own human nature. So we've got to be really careful of getting into these wrong attitudes of envy and resentment and wanting to fight and having bitter envy and self-seeking in our hearts because that can destroy us. It can bring on cancer or aggravate the cancer we may already have. It can aggravate a stroke. It can aggravate any kind of disease we have. It can bring on heart trouble as these doctors bring out, everything like that. And we've got to really understand that and really deeply appreciate it and do our part. Turn back to Proverbs chapter 13. Turn back to Proverbs, if you would, chapter 13 now. And beginning in verse 20. This is a very important key here. <clears throat> he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. If you or I hang around with fools, those who really don't love God, those who not, do not fear God, and those who are always kind of chipping away, chipping away at the work and making, put down remarks about the work, the church, the ministry in the church, of the brethren, we're going to be hurt. We're going to be hurt by that very much. He who walks with wise men will be wise. But if you hang around fools, you will be destroyed. So be careful of the influences around you. Be careful of the people that are around you. Be careful of the television programs that you watch. If they breed this kind of, you're watching kind of sexy programs or programs about violence or lying or cheating that make light of all those things or make light of God, it does rub off on you. It does happen to you. It hurts your mind and attitude. The Internet can be an awful thing. As some of you know, years ago, my wife talked me into one of our boys' rooms and just wanted me to see, and she punched the thing and showed me how just punch some buttons and you have a whole picture full of naked women there doing all kinds of stuff. It was awful. I'd never seen that. I didn't need to see it. I saw it for a few seconds, but I said, well, honey, I'm married and we're happy, but I don't need to see any more of this now. So we punched it off again. But the teenage boys can be into that, your boys, before you even know what's happening. It pollutes their mind. They can't think of a young woman as being a sister in Christ and a pure human being and someone who could be their mother of their children later on. It distorts the whole attitude towards sex, marriage, everything. Perverts them. A sickness of the mind. So don't let TV, don't let people, don't let anyone get your mind messed up like that. And chapter... Uh, 12 and verse 26 by the way of Proverbs chapter 12 verse 26 it says the righteous should choose his friends carefully and brethren that's true some of you already have friends I'm not saying go off and drop anyone that's not perfect but think about the friends that you have some of you still have worldly friends and again it's not wrong to have people that are you know you're reasonably friendly with at your work or whatever but if you cultivate 
worldly friends that talk a whole different way of life and live a different way and have a different standard of values, it is going to hurt. Choose your friends carefully. And we really need to do that, all of us. For the way of the wicked leads them astray. If you're involved with wicked people, their attitudes, the little nuances of the way they say things about God, about the law of God, the way of God, the work of God, is going to rub off on you. So choose your friends carefully and choose the kind of television and radio programs and Internet programs that you watch very, very carefully. Emphasize the positive always. Then another scripture that would be good to read would be verse 25 here. He says, anxiety in the heart of man causes depression. If you worry too much, you literally get depressed. And it affects your mood, your mentally and emotionally induced illness, E-I-I, through anxiety. But a good word makes it glad. Try to consciously encourage one another, build each other up, offer to help each other, pray for each other, or a family. And we're not as close as we could be because there are about 12,000 of us all together with new brethren coming in around the world. And we're a big church here now, not big, but compared to what we used to be, we have over 200 here nearly every Sabbath. But try to get to know your brethren here. Help them, pray for them, encourage them, do things for them. You've heard me tell so many times how when I was up in Oregon and my first pastorate, why, you know, close Shepherd and others helped me and gave me things, encouraged me and I really will never forget that. I can never forget Mrs. Levy and Mrs. LaBouche and Mrs. Beischlein and Miss Willette, a bunch of old ladies who are all the age of my mother or grandmother when I first started the church in San Diego. And they put up with me, but they would encourage me. They were they acted like grandmothers, and I got along real well with them because I acted like their grandson and encouraged them, and we got along just fine but they would try to encourage me. Others this little church were constantly helping each other. Learn to be that way. Help others. Don't let them get discouraged and run down. So that will help all of us overcome any emotionally induced illnesses. So we've got to have that attitude of helping one another and not letting our brethren have anxiety in a way that's just not necessary. Turn to chapter 13 now and notice verse 10. Proverbs 13:10. By pride comes only contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. Some people are proud and they want to argue. I have my opinion. Just push it off on someone. They're the ones that stir up contention or arguments. Don't be so dogmatic. You don't have to state your opinion in a great big dogmatic way every time. You might be wrong or you might be, you know, be more humble in the way you express yourself, the way you act. And people will be able to communicate with you better. It won't cause contention. In chapter 14, Proverbs 14, and uh, trying to see what my own notes are saying. I think I mean verse 30. Yes, here it is. Proverbs 14, verse 30. A sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. If you envy, it literally, there are other statements in the Bible that literally say some of these wrong attitudes affect the bones. You actually could get bone cancer or you could get other things, you know, all kinds of arthritis and things affecting your structure. If you're all tense all the time, 
these scriptures of the Bible have meaning. God knows how we're put together. And these scriptures have definite physical meaning. So if you do not have a sound heart and you're lusting or you're hating, resenting, you're in bitterness, it can affect you in a number of physical ways and we all need to really realize that. In chapter 15, turn to Proverbs chapter 15 now and beginning in verse 13. A wrathful man stirs up strife. I'm sorry, verse 15. All the days of the afflicted are evil if you're in trouble and hurting all the time. But he who is of a merry heart has a continual feast. Try to cultivate a merry heart. That doesn't mean that you're not aware of problems, but you try to have a positive attitude. You try to look on the bright side. You know, back in those days in the Second World War and right after the Second World War, we had all these songs come out, hundreds of them, dozens, I should say, at least, and movies. The play turned into movie Oklahoma. And, uh, oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. That went on and on. Oh, just positive. You think on the beautiful day, the beautiful morning, and all the things that they had at that time that you think of in a positive way and try to learn to do that. He who is a merry heart has a continual feast. Better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble. If you have a troubled attitude, it doesn't make any difference how much money you have or how much food. You're torn up inside. You're emotionally, mentally upset. Verse 17, better is a dinner of herbs. Better to be a vegetarian where love is than a fatted calf with hatred. So all these things feed into the same thing. Your attitude hurts your digestion. Your attitude hurts, of course, your body, your mind, your emotions, and certainly will affect your physical health in every way if you don't control uh, those attitudes. Uh, I want to turn now to chapter 19, Proverbs 19 and verse 22. Here's something I've told some of my friends in the ministry and others. It, it hit me more the last few years. It's just one proverb among many, but I think it's so important. What is desired in a man is kindness, and the margin says loving kindness. What is desired in a man is loving kindness, and a poor man is better than a liar. Even a poor man, if he's a decent, good man, a man is really esteemed if he has loving kindness. What are some of the most important things you remember or important people that you love the most, the longest? Those that were good to you, those who were kind to you, loving kindness. If we all can try to really practice that, think about that, be that way, to show loving kindness to one another. That is what is desired, and that certainly will promote physical and mental and emotional health in us. And the same thing in those around us. Good mental health, physical health as well, by showing loving kindness. And then we turn to chapter 21. This is uh, Proverbs 21 and verse 21. He who follows righteousness and mercy, follow God's commandments. To love God with all your heart and strength and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself, finds life, righteousness and honor 
you will find life, not mental turmoil, not sickness bringing you down to death because you're all torn up inside. But if you follow what? Righteousness. But don't just follow righteousness alone. Some people are so righteous, they're always judging others, trying to catch them, trying to put them down at every little chance they get. Don't do that. God has not assigned you to be the policeman for everybody else. Try to police yourself. He who follows righteousness and mercy, mercy. Everyone can't be perfect all at once. Neither can you, neither can I. We all need mercy. You've heard the story about the old guy that uh, said, well, I want, when I face God in the judgment, I want justice. And the Protestant preacher who had a little bit of sense, he said, you don't want justice, you want mercy. And that's true. When we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we're all going to need to have mercy. So we do need to learn to have mercy ourselves in the way we think about others in the church, those we work with, and have an attitude of mercy toward them. And that will help our attitude toward them and certainly help in every way uh, the whole thing. Now, brethren, turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians, you know this chapter. First Corinthians chapter 13, and this is called, as most of you know, the love chapter. Though I speak the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I become a sounding brass or clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, so you can understand all kinds of technical things about prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains. That'd be powerful. And some of us may be able to move mountains before it's all. We don't know that. That'd be wonderful. But have not love. We're all puffed up with self, vanity, jealousy, lust, and greed. Though I have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, boy, I'm going to help the poor, and I'm going to work my way to the kingdom by these good deeds. No, if you do it in vanity and self-will, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. As I've often told you, think about those monks in Vietnam that used to set themselves on fire. Were they setting themselves on fire to honor the true God? No, it's a matter of political rebellion against the ones who were in charge. That was not love. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. If you do not have envy, you'll have more peace of mind. Love does not parade itself. It's not always showing off. It, prop, it does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It's not arrogant, in other words. does not behave rudely. does not seek its own. That's perhaps one of the key phrases in the whole chapter. Love does not seek its own. So many of us, consciously or unconsciously, constantly thinking, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Well, maybe nothing is in it for you except God's blessing and eternal life. That better be enough. You may not get ahead physically. You may not get ahead in position in the church. You may not be the next deacon or the next elder. You may not be paraded up in front of the congregation given some big, big, big congratulations. But you may have God's blessing by having this genuine love and worship and adoration for God and love and kindness and outflowing concern for fellow man. Love does not seek its own, is not provoked, not upset real easily, 
thinks no evil, or as the margin says, keeps no account of evil. Love does not constantly keep account of all the bad things everybody has done. I remember one pastor-ranked minister years ago that finally went nuts himself and I think was possessed by a demon before he was finally kicked out or left. And he literally had a black book. I mean, the little book he carried in his pocket here was a black book. And when he began to work with me at one point, he was not my main helper, but among others during the crisis of 79, every now and then he would pick that book out and he would read about how, well, Mr. So-and-so, this evangelist, his one girl got herself pregnant outside of wedlock and one of his boys was into drugs and they had all, he had all the black stuff about every single minister that he could think of that he could put down. I guess he thought if he could destroy them, then that would make him more important. Maybe I would give him a bigger job because I was, you know, reckoned as the second man, although I knew I was not the second man. Another, Lord Darth Vader, Lord Darth Vader was actually the second man, but I was among the ministers regarded that for several months as I was running the work for Mr. Armstrong in the ministry at least. So he was trying to make points with me by putting everyone else down. It didn't take me long to figure out, well, if he's got that book back on them, I wonder where my name is in his black book. You know, that's not the way to get ahead, put the other guy down. God hates that. He hates that. Don't try to keep account of everybody else's problems. Do not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You're genuinely trying to give to help others, help them get in God's kingdom. Love never fails. Well, love won't get all upset all of a sudden because it's outflowing concern anyway. You offend the person, well, they don't get upset because they love you and they know you're human. So, you know, love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish. Does that mean the prophecies will not come to pass? No. All the prophecies will eventually come to an end. And all the things we think of as knowledge are going to come to an end. I was just in Chicago, and I think they have about, whatever it is, 4 million people or whatever there, maybe 5 million in the metro area. Well, that's knowledge. But that's going to come to an end before there won't be Chicago at all. There will be a different city and a different situation and different everything. Well, this tower will not be there in the coming bombing of a great city. He said all your cities will be destroyed. And you read back in, in uh, Ezekiel 6, verse 6, there may not be New York City anymore. There may be a great big natural harbor where New York City used to be because of the atomic bombs or atom bombs, hey, hydrogen bombs. We don't know. I'm just saying everything around us is going to change. All the things we think of as knowledge is not going to exist anymore. That's not so important. The main thing, of course, is love. To have that worship and adoration to God that leads to obedience and to love your fellow man and serve him and give to him so that you can live with him forever in peace and kindness and a mutual spirit of service. Love never fails. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. We're only here a short time. We better learn the big lessons. Then we won't have emotionally induced illness. But when that which is perfect has come, then when that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. And I did. I know when I was a child in West Central grade school, why we had four or five grade schools or six there in Joplin. And our main enemy was the kids up in Columbia School. They were up north. 
So we got to fight Columbia, and we went to beat them in the little little uh, beaten matches we had of various sorts. So beat Columbia. We didn't hate them, but, you know, just a friendly competition. And some of it was not perfect. We thought they're they're more important, but they thought they were more important and more had more money. But then Columbia and West Central came together in the same junior high school. The same kids in the same, oh, well, then we learned to love them. Then we were against East Junior High School and South Junior High. And then East Junior and House South Junior High and North Junior High, where I was, all got together in Joplin High School, all three of the same high school. Then we used to compete with Springfield. Springfield was the last football game of the year on Thanksgiving, so we got to beat Springfield. I remember kidding the brethren in Springfield when I first preached there. I used to want to beat you, and now I'm up preaching at you here in the Worldwide Church of God and, and uh, years later. But anyway, you get that attitude. Now, we're Americans, and it's the Germans. We don't like the Germans. We don't like the Japanese. Watch out for the Russians. Watch out for the Chinese. No, every human being is made in God's image, and pretty soon we're all going to be in the kingdom of God and members of the God family, and we're not going to have all these attitudes. It'd be gone. We only prophesy in part. It's all going to be done. So we used to think as a child and have these little childish attitudes about things. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, just like a glazed mirror. We don't see clearly. And then face to face, now I know in part but then I shall know just as I also am known. Or we, I shall understand, as the Revised Standard has it. I think it's even more profound in a way. Finally, we're going to really understand why God allowed Jimmy to die, my friend Jimmy Mallet. Why God allowed, you know, Dick Armstrong to die. Why God allowed this or that to happen. We'll, we'll understand, and we will understand why God allowed things to happen to us or why things happen to the world. Then we will understand, Just we will know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love. Key things, that attitude of faith and trust in God that he is there, he will never leave you, he will never forsake you, and then hope, a positive approach based on, of course, the general attitude of Romans 8:28. All things work for good. And the Protestants quote that, all things work for good. Really? All things work for good for those who are called by God and, of course, who love God and are called by God, called according to his purpose. And most of them are not called by God and they do not love God because if you love God, you'll keep his commandments. But they do work for good for those people. Faith, hope, love. All things work for good. That's the approach of hope. And then love. You love God because he is that kind of God. These three, but the greatest of these is love. And if you have that outflowing concern and love and adoration for God and love for your fellow man, then all these other things will work out for good. I want to give you a few keys, brethren, if you want to write taking notes. These are keys to use in building your spiritual and mental health and avoiding emotionally induced illness. First, in your own mind and, and way of doing, emphasize God as your Father. This is Father's Day. He is your ultimate Father. And the positive approach to everything based on that. God is your Father. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He loves you. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. 
try to have that approach. God is my Father. He's guiding all these things for good if I do my part. Secondly, the second key, work at it. Really try to live this. Develop a positive sort of group of friends. Have positive friends, positive TV programs, positive magazines and books and things that you read and drink in of. Have a positive around. Surround yourself with positive thoughts, positive people, positive attitudes, not always those that are negative and chipping away at the truth or at the leadership in the church or whatever it is. Then thirdly, strive powerfully to avoid negativism. If you allow yourself to be around negative people, just fight it. Get away from them if you have to. When you're around a fool that says, go your way. You have to just walk away. Avoid negativism as best you can. Avoid hate. Avoid resentment. Avoid the wrong kind of competition. And constantly think about how you can serve. Not, Not do good to compete, but to serve others. Then fourthly, a fourth key, and this ties in, I'm sure Dr. Winnell mentioned that last time, and connects with physical health, but frankly, it's a very, very important key regarding spiritual health too. Get involved to the degree you can do at your age and your present condition in vigorous physical activity. I've constantly known all my life, and I've been involved in athletics and sports in many parts of the world where I'd hike or run or talk to people who are involved in things like that, including living in the Y in London, England, and being around there, elsewhere. People who are into sports usually have a positive attitude. Now, some of them are positively too too, uh, competitive, but they basically, you know, when you get through exercise, you're usually tired and happy. You come in all covered with sweat, and you kind of, you kind of work out the frustration, you know, on the handball court or the soccer field or whatever it is. So if you go and get physical exercise, if you get frustrated, take a walk. Go out under the stars and take a walk. A pretty junior panning and breathing in and out, and you forget all about what this guy said. It doesn't bother you anymore. You're out there alone with God, and you're puffing and panning, and pretty soon you're sweating, and you're working up a good sweat. If you walk fast and get physical exercise, That will produce, as you know, endomorphins, something that comes into your bloodstream that helps you be more positive, even from that point of view. Physical exercise and activity is a good way to help fight emotionally induced illness. And a fifth way, which ties right back in with number one, but I'll repeat it, five, number five, constantly focus on God's Word, study God's Word, and positive things of every sort. Focus on God's Word and positive ideas of every sort. And one of those ideas is back here in Isaiah. And we could go on and on with scriptures like this. I've already said, if God be for us, who could be against us? And, and uh, you know, one of our favorites, and of course, we read there in Philippians chapter 4, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Philippians 4.13. Here's a wonderful one back in Isaiah 26, verse 3. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You will be in perfect peace. You will not have stress. You will not be all torn up. You will not be hating. 
You will not be envious if you drink into this word and feed on Christ and think like Christ thinks. And you are trusting in God to back up his word and to guide your life for good. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. So learn to do that, brethren, and you will build a positive attitude. You will avoid psychological problems that can give you heart attacks, cancer, stress, really the diseases of every sort. And you can have peace of mind and you will have the right attitude and be in God's kingdom. That's another very important part of health, mental and emotional health and avoid EII, emotionally induced illness and be in God's kingdom most important of all.